Hello and welcome to the podcast, Enemies from War to Wisdom. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the often confusing and painful issues that surround human hostilities. In this way, we hope to open the door to greater curiosity, dialogue, and discovery between people who are poised to be enemies, those who are opposed to each other or have been hurt and rejected by each other. Our goal is to help us all enter into the wisdom that prevents chronic conflict from leading to alienation, fragmentation, or war. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist who is the director of Emma Troop, an experimental theater laboratory in New York City. And I'm here with co-host Polly Young-Eisendratt. She is an author, speaker, psychologist, and psychoanalyst. While we come to these topics from each our own perspectives, Polly and I bring insight from our own lifelong dedicated practices of Buddhism that inform everything we do and think. We hope you find our conversation useful and that you will join us again and again. And now the podcast. I want to talk today about both conflict in the outer world between people, between groups, between nations, and conflict in the inner world, uh, as often you know, people might not really know what inner conflict is, because you might have heard the word or the term, you might have heard somebody say, I feel a kind of inner conflict, but it might not be clear to you. So if you think about conflict as it's always going to be two, and it's always going to be fighting, so in a very fundamental way, uh, internally, in our thoughts and feelings, we fight with ourselves. We get into the push and pull of whether we should or shouldn't do something, of whether something is good or bad. We go through sometimes a process in our own feelings where we feel drawn to something and then we feel repulsed by it or we feel afraid of it. So internal conflict is this experience that we cannot find a solution, we can't find a direction, because we don't feel unified. We feel like we're caught by two sides of something, and those sides do not get resolved. So one of the biggest inner conflicts that people feel, and I think today especially, is a kind of conflict about blame and shame. In other words, am I at fault? Did I do this? Am I the bad guy? Am I the one that did the wrong thing? Or is it somebody else? Somebody else who needs to be put down, confronted. So the conflict between blame and shame is often an inner conflict. We don't go out into the world with the intention of blaming somebody or even shaming ourselves. But internally, we may be Oh, I don't know if this is my fault or your fault. So at root, a lot of our inner conflicts do take place around the sort of self-protection. Like we want to protect ourselves as being good, as being correct, as being right, as being virtuous. Or we don't know how to handle the emotions that are arising within us. Well, those are that would be in some way connected to try, usually trying to protect ourselves in some way. So, you know, yeah, the, the, the sense of somehow wanting to feel that we're good and somebody else is bad, that we're right, somebody else is wrong, those are the kinds of nature, those are the nature of inner conflict. 
And they often lead to outer conflict right. because as the writer Solzhenitsyn said, you know, famously, if we could just go out and kill all the bad people in the world, well, that would seem to make everything better. But it turns out that that line between good and bad, between truth and non-truth, falls through our own hearts. So we'd have to cut out half of our heart in order to cut out all of the bad. So I want to point out that conflicts often start out within ourselves and then they get going with others. And why are they so difficult? Because actually conflict itself does not lead to solutions. It doesn't lead to uh, unification, unity, oneness. It leads to that splitting that sort of splitting of opposites, where there's a good and a bad and a right and a wrong and so on. And that's everywhere, that there are human beings, there are these conflicts internally and externally. And we could talk more about that because a lot of it does revolve around feelings and emotions. But just to get it on the table, conflict is not simply between people, it's also within ourselves. Right, right. And so, you know, developing you know, this awareness of, of how to work with our own inner conflict is, you know, a, a kind of mindfulness approach in terms of meeting outer obstacles, outer conflict. If we can have that awareness within ourselves, maybe we can catch ourselves so that we, again, and you know how I always, I'm, I refer to out projection, but that we can, we can kind of withdraw our, our projection off the other and take responsibility mm -hmm. within ourselves. I mean, I'm talking at a, not at an explosive level, but you know, where we could just be more awake, more aware. Well, if you start to think about why do you blame other people? Why do you blame anything? You right. Know, it's because somehow you believe that you're the victim, that you're on the righteous side, that somebody else actually has control or has done something that needs to be corrected. And um, so there's a kind of righteousness always in blaming, and there's a kind of moral superiority in feeling like you're the victim. It's very difficult to feel like you're the perpetrator. It's hard for people to actually feel like, oh, I might be creating difficulty right here, right now. Maybe I'm taking a position in this argument or a position in regard to my opinions or my politics or whatever that slightly insults somebody else, that perhaps makes somebody else more the problem than I see myself as the problem. So, you know, one thing that I think makes it very difficult for us to take that step back and you say, you know, to, to really see what's going on internally, to stop ourselves from what you're calling projection, is that we have that sense that somebody else is at fault, that I'm not at fault. So my, my feeling is that in order to reach a point where we can begin to actually feel our feelings instead of discharging them, see what's going on internally, we have to take this first step to recognize that we're all broken. We're all insufficient to the task. There is no perfect one out there. And for that very reason, we need each other. 
we need the warp and the woof, we need the right and the left, we need the people who believe in climate change and the people who don't believe in climate change. If we cannot put those two sides together, we never get any unity. It's just one conflict after another conflict after another conflict. And so there's no lasting solution. And what do you do where it's abusive or it's wounding or you need to, you know, kind of draw a line in the sand and you're attempting to hold a boundary and you're in conflict because you're up against someone who's holding a very different point of view but gets far more aggressive with you? Well, I would always ask myself first, did I throw the first stone here, you know? Well, what if you didn't? I think, you know, in my own experience, apart from violence inflicted on mm -hmm. people, many times the stone is thrown both ways, that both people are throwing a stone. If we have a real disagreement, if we both have opinions and ideals that we strongly embrace, mm -hmm. I think we begin from a position of self-protection. Mm -hmm. And so we feel like our side has the truth. Our side has the facts. Our side has the evidence. As soon as you take that position, you have already formed another side, which you're gonna to try to tack on to the other person. You know, if instead you begin with the idea of, okay, I have a point of view here, I have a set of feelings, I have a way of thinking, but maybe it's not the end all. Maybe in fact, you know, it's slightly broken too. And so let me find out, even if I'm in a fight with you, even if you are somebody that I love deeply and you've harmed me, let me find out what it's like to be you. Like, why did you do that? Or what were you thinking? Or how do you see this? I go back to my feeling like you've got to be a saint. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. To, you know, to be able to, yeah, yeah no, kind of so, catch yourself and stand tall and, you know, like, oh my God. So my, you know, as, I said, as I said in other shows, I mean, I think you have to be a human being. <laughs> That's right. I think many of us do not rise yeah. to the occasion yeah. of really being human beings because human yeah. beings can reflect on themselves. Right. Human beings can take a step back. Human beings can examine their experience in the moment and say, okay, at this moment, my stomach is tight, my throat is tight, I have some thoughts going on about what I'm going to have for dinner, and I have some other thoughts about how much I hate, whatever. So it's like only human beings can stop and examine and say, huh, here's what's going on inside of me. Can I tolerate all that agitation, all of those thoughts, long enough to ask you a question instead of blaming you from the beginning? And that's the, really the issue. At root, we have a very, very hard time with our feelings, with these feelings that agitate us and that lead us to this sense that we have to fight, we have to pretend that we're on the right side. So, you know, the, um, the, the, the issue around feelings is something that I think is currently uh, not very clear. And um, just yesterday we heard Sam Harris interviewing Jonathan Haidt, and Jonathan Haidt and a colleague of his have come out with a book called Coddling the American Mind. And one of the three lies that they address in the book, one of the things that they feel really is a lie, is that you should follow your feelings. If you follow your feelings, 
you will always follow the same old path of your habits and your habits of protecting yourself. Because when your feelings are very stirred up, they tend to be repetitive scenes and themes and ideas, stories, narratives you tell yourself, how you're victimized, mm -hmm. what's happened to you. Isn't it what we're seeing in the world? It's I what's mean, happening all right over now, the place. Yeah. yeah, if there's any kind of feeling of moral superiority going on with that, mm -hmm. or what some people have called victim prestige, where you get associated with, you know, some sort of feeling that in a group or an idea that you have been especially treated unfairly, then you can build a case around your feelings that you absolutely had to attack that person, that you had to excoriate and humiliate that person without any regard for what's going on with the other person. Can you say a little bit more about what, you know, at a deeper level, what's really going on for someone who clings to being victimized, who's who's shut down in terms of being able to see the other or to perceive the other, but just feels completely, completely wounded and disempowered? Well, in a general way, at that moment, that person is very hurting, uh -huh. is in pain, may feel rejected, but almost always also feel somehow humiliated. Mm -hmm. The humiliation button, yeah. if you want to call yeah. it that, is, in my view, the button that is pushed for all war, yeah. all destructive conflict. As soon as I feel that you have humiliated me, often the next feeling is my rage. Mm -hmm. I feel enraged. And so then I may feel that my only choice is to humiliate you back or to be humiliated. Like there are only two possibilities. Here I am, I'm gonna right. be humiliated right. or I'm gonna humiliate you back. Once that cycle gets going, mm -hmm. it's a cycle of rage and humiliation and it is one of the most destructive interactive cycles that human beings have in their families, in their love relationships, in their communities, their societies, and their nations. So. The probably very key issue in regard to serious and chronic and dangerous conflict is that sense of shame and humiliation. And so it's a button that you don't mm. want to push right, right, if right. you are in a situation where conflict could go too yeah. far. Yeah. And so to go beyond ourselves, we must know ourselves. And I think what you were just saying in terms of the inner perspective of what goes on for us when we're in conflict is that we have to have some access to what's going on within ourselves to be able to change so that we can break down the hostility or we can find that platform where we can experience tolerance in a situation where there's been so much intolerance. Let's try to look at this idea of knowing yourself because it goes back to a lot of roots that people don't understand very well, like the Greeks' idea of know yourself, really did not mean know yourself as an individual. It meant know that you are a human being, that you are mortal, that you are limited. That's the kind of know yourself that the Greeks meant. And in a certain way, I kind of like to start with that because the idea that you could precisely know what motivates you, Eleanor, or what motivates me, Polly, we know now because we've studied emotional memory, the brain, all sorts of things. We know that's impossible. 
You can't really know it. From moment to moment to moment, you can begin to see what's happening if you actually can feel your feelings without doing something with your feelings. So in any given moment, if you're in a time of hostility with somebody else in a difficult conflict, if you stop and you sense in your body what's going on, you know, is your throat tight? Is your stomach tight? And then what kinds of words are coming to your mind? Do you have a narrative running? Is the narrative about you? Is it about the other person? As you begin to look into that moment to moment narrative and the feelings that you have, you can begin to know at that moment what's motivating you. And if you have a modesty about it, that you don't know the whole picture, that you need the other person, then you begin to ask the other person some questions and you begin to go back and forth. What are some of the practices that help you to remember this? Because when you're in it, if you've not had practice, you know, you end up falling in the same trap. You just get, you know, triggered by your vulnerability, triggered by humiliation, triggered by a sense of impossibility. What allows you to practice where you could, where you could allow for the possibility of a kind of coexistence between difference? My feeling is that the idea of blame is one of those ideas, again, that can be tricky for people because if they blame themselves, they may then feel like they've done something very wrong instead of assuming, well, this is just a normal human thing that I have these hostile feelings. We all have feelings, thoughts, narratives that we are unaware of. We all have those. We cannot check on them in a yeah. precise way. Yeah, we are all unconscious. We're in so all many ways. primarily yeah. unconscious. Yeah. You know, we're rarely conscious, really. Like little Carl Jung talked about islands of consciousness. I would say that consciousness sometimes it's present as true consciousness if you're able to actually shine that light of awareness on your actual experience. But that's hard to do. And that often takes place more in meditation. So I'm trying to really suggest some things that might be easier for people to do. And so the very first thing, again, that we talked about in an earlier program is to recognize that you are creating self and other. It's not just self. So what you're feeling about yourself, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, that's limited because at the moment that you're in a conflict, you also have a version of the other person. You think the other person is whatever you think, you know, uninformed or motivated badly towards you or angry or whatever. And so that narrative about the other person is going right alongside of your experience of yourself. So the very first thing is to know that the self is not just this simple thing. It's not just about you. It's about you and another person or you and the environment or you and whatever is around you, you know, it, but in a conflict, it's you and the person you're in conflict with. You're doing both sides of those. So how do you create a space where you can actually hear what the other person is saying? You, you're not responsible for the other person, but if you want to solve a conflict, if you want to get to a point of actual ongoing ability to resolve conflict, you have to in some way make space for the other person to have a presence too. You have to be interested, curious. So first, you know, you notice your own hostility, 
you recognize that you're also narrating the other person internally, you stop, you check out what's going on in your body, and then the next step might be that you ask a question of the other person. This is a tricky thing because all of these things <laughs> have tricky unconscious uh, emotions connected to them. And so, again, to try to say, well, what are some practices? First step, recognize that you create self and other, recognize that you don't know yourself well, recognize that if you want to solve conflict, you have to create a space where the other person can also be present, but that you don't lose track of your own experiences either. In a certain way, you can set in your mind a framework for conflict. That you, makes sense. You know, yeah. And one of these frameworks that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has pointed out is instead of beginning with what you don't like or where you disagree, you can begin with some sense of unity. Uh, he suggests, for example, in terms of increasing world peace, that we have more picnics. And what he meant by that was not picnics for fun, but that when people come together to talk about serious issues where they're in conflict, they first sit down and have a meal together, they enjoy each other's company, they laugh together, they see some things that allow them to feel the common human aspect that we're all here together. We all want the best. We all want happiness. We all want to reduce suffering. And so those things we share, if you begin with that unity, then when you go into the conflict where you have differences, there's more tendency to be interested in what the other person is saying as well as what you are experiencing. So that's one sort of way to think about preparation for conflict. Can you, when you're in conflict, do something that brings you to laughter, that brings you to to eating together, to recognizing your humanity. As the second step beyond the, let's find the common human ways that we are alike, the second step is, can we avoid saying threatening and humiliating things to the other in the present moment? In other words, when, when, we, when we speak, arises, yeah, yeah, when yeah. there's a conflict, when we speak, are we able, and I know that I've worked a lot of time training myself to find ways right. to speak about my own discomfort, my own disappointment, annoyance, and so on, without humiliating somebody else, right. without saying, right. oh, you asshole, right. or, you know, you're always the one who <laughs> which does is a skill, this. Which is a skill and is also a, 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 a wisdom path. But, but again, you know, you've practiced yeah, you practice it, but you start, you probably can start even without a lot of skill. If you recognize that any time that you or anybody else uses humiliation, and humiliation is the exposure of other people's weaknesses, right. any time anyone uses humiliation, it evokes rage. It will always evoke aggression because we are extremely self-protective as human beings. We, even though we don't, we, you know, the self is not inside of us, we're protective of what we identify with, of our own bodies, of, of our children, of our families. So as soon as we feel that threat, then we go into rage, 
aggression. So to begin when you're working with conflict, if you begin by threatening somebody else, then they're going to go to the rage aggression. Then you may feel threatened and then you may go to rage aggression and that immediately sets up the cyclical, what you you could call a vicious cycle or a vicious circle where two people are just insulting each other and becoming more and more enraged. And I see a lot of that today in the media. I see a lot of that in the ways in which people characterize each other. They actually insult and say humiliating things about people they disagree with, which then brings the rage response. I don't think we've really witnessed this kind of bullying in our public discourse in the way that we are today. I want to just ask you if you could say a little bit more about the concept of self that you're talking about. I think that might not be as obvious to our listeners. And are you influenced by Buddhism in the way that you define self and other? Yeah, I would say I'm influenced by Buddhism and by working with people in therapy for now, like, I don't know, 35 years. First of all, the concept of self, if if I ask a room full of 100 people what self means, I'll get a hundred answers. Right. There isn't any consensus because it doesn't exist anywhere. It's an interactional process and we assume it's somewhere. And that's why the Buddha basically says, do you find a self inside of your body? Do you find a self outside of your body? Is your body the self? And, And then shows you analytically how you can't find it. And so basically that results in the teaching of no self, which doesn't mean that you don't need this interactional process called self, but it means it doesn't exist as a thing. It's not somewhere. It's not in you. It's not out of you, but it's in a very important fiction, let's say. What that fiction sets up are a bunch of habits that you have for defending what you identify with and the ways that you feel. Mm -hmm. And so those are interactional processes. They're habitual. Uh, Psychoanalysts call them defense mechanisms. And what happens is that when we interact with other people, when we feel even the slightest threat or we feel a little bit anxious, we can go into a habit. And then we begin to react as we habitually do, you know, which is like, no, I'm the kind of person who blah, blah, blah. And so you're the kind of person who blah, blah, blah. So the idea that the self is interactive It's not a thing. It's a set of habits. That is an idea that, again, I think people can get pretty easily if you actually do. You think our our beliefs are are what inform you know our habits, Um, what our belief structures are. Really, if you uh, the biggest motivator for your habits are your emotions, your feelings. So your emotions are a part of your biology what we call feelings are your personal interpretations mm-hmm. of that, that little choking feeling in your throat or the squeeze in your stomach. You have words that you'll put with that. You have stories that you'll put with that. And then you call those your feelings. I'm angry about this, I'm sad about that, and so on. So um, the primary motivators for our habits are our emotions and our feelings. But then after those motivations begin, then they're developed by these narratives, by these stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and other people. 
Hopefully this exploration of conflict sheds some light and helps us all find ways to act wisely and effectively when conflict arises both in our personal lives and in our public lives. And perhaps too we will not as easily or unconsciously be swept away by our reactivity. I'd like to leave our listeners with something to reflect on. Buddha teaches us that with our thoughts, we make the world. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies for More to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.